whether you're on God's good list or God's bad list. If things are going good for you, then no matter what, God's pleased with you. And if things are going bad, no matter what, then God's upset with you. It's just that simple. So the friends look at the retribution principle and they say, hey, Job, you're suffering because you've done something not just bad, but based on Job's circumstances, what? Yeah, Job done something really bad. So that's the retribution principle. How can we be sure this isn't the case with Job? How do you know for a fact, even if you stopped reading now, which would be bad, because God's going to show up in chapter 38, but if you stopped after the first round of speeches, how could you be sure, without a doubt, that they are wrong about Job and the retribution principle, this idea that good people are blessed, bad people suffer, how do you know for a fact, without a doubt, that's not true about Job? How do you know that? Job chapter 1 and verse 1. Remember, go, go to Job 1. Hold your hand in Job 15. But you've got to keep going back to Job chapter 1 and verse 1 for two reasons. The first reason is because the friends are going to say things about Job and you need to be reminded it's not true. Right? The second reason, though, is because Job's going to say some things that may even cause you to doubt. Is Job really all he's supposed to be? And you've got to remember, when you start thinking that yourself, you're wrong. It's not true. Look at Job 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And what does God say about him? Three things. He was blameless and upright, one who and turned away from evil. Now, in Job chapter 1 and verse 8, God quotes the same thing, but he adds something. What does God add? None like him on the earth. None like him in all the earth. Job wasn't just good. Job wasn't just a righteous man. God says he's the best man alive right now. So the only comparable statement to this in the rest of the entire Bible is what Jesus says about John the Baptist in Matthew 11 and verse 11. Of those born of a woman, there's nobody greater than John. But this statement reminds you, no matter what else you read in the book of Job, Job 1 and verse 1, Job 1 and verse 8, Job 2 and verse 3, Job is not what the friends say they are. And even as we read, and we're going to see some things today that are going to make you kind of think, I don't know about this, Job's not who we say he is. Job is exactly who God says he is from the first verse of the book throughout the end. And so the retribution principle does not apply to Job. They are, they are mistaken. But before we rush past the retribution principle and talk about why Job and his friends are wrong about this and why even Job's wrong about this, does Job believe in the retribution principle? Yes or yes? Yes. How do you know Job believes in the principle? He said, I could speak as you do if you were in my place. Well, yeah, he's going to say that about the rebuking part, but how do you know that Job believes the retribution principle, which is good people are blessed and bad people suffer? Well, he feels God is his enemy. He wouldn't be in this circumstance if he didn't believe that his entire speech is about I've been a good guy, and because I've been a good guy, what? These things should not be happening to me. So not only do Job's friends believe in the retribution principle, but Job sort of believes it too. And he's wrestling with this idea, hey, my theology is turned upside down. Good people are supposed to be rewarded. I wasn't just good. I was the best. And so why are these things happening to me? But before we rush past that and say, well, how could they believe this? Why do the friends believe it? Why would they want to believe it? Why would they want to believe the retribution principle? I think, well, I've got four reasons, but you give me what you've got. Why do Job's friends believe the retribution principle? Why do they want to believe it? We know it's incorrect across the board completely, but why do they buy into it? They don't want to suffer. They don't want to suffer. More on that, we'll just put that one right here. Yeah, well, let's talk about this one. They don't want to suffer. We could just say themselves, right? This is a selfish reason. 
And here's how this works. And Eliphaz is going to really bring this out in Job 15. If the retribution principle is not true, if it is not true that good people always get good things and bad people get bad things, then what does that mean about them? One day, they could be in the same position as who? They've got to try to reconcile this. And the way they try to reconcile it is, Job, you must have done something wrong. Because if that's not true, one day we could be in your same shoes. And that's important. Because as we try to comfort people, we really need to make sure that we're trying to comfort people and not ourselves. Sometimes when we show up to help people, we kind of want to make sure that we're okay. Sometimes this happens when somebody dies. Not all the time, but sometimes when somebody dies, we'll say something like this. Somebody lost somebody, and we'll say, what's the next thing we ask? How what? How did they die, we'll say. And then somebody explains it, and you're like, well, did they have underlying conditions? Was there something else going on with them? Because we just want to make sure good and upright people don't drop dead all the time, or that's bad news for who? For us. And so, like, tell me they were out of shape, or that they did. No, they did everything right. Well, what happened? Did they eat? Did they have a family history? No, not at all. That makes us uneasy. We don't like to hear that sort of thing. And so we're looking for the rest of the story. Job's friends are saying, Job, we know you're right and you're good, but surely there's some secret sin. Because if there isn't a secret sin, and this could happen to anybody, well, it could happen to us. So they not only hope the retribution principle is true or believe it, they need it to be true. Eliphaz is going to say in chapter 15, Job, if this isn't true, then we've got no reason to serve God. This makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, one of the reasons they want it to be true is because selfishly they don't ever want to suffer themselves and when we go to comfort other people we need to make sure we really want to comfort them and not ourselves does anybody else get afraid as they read the book of Job? you start reading this and you start thinking if this could happen to a man like this then nobody's really off limits why else do his friends want to believe the retribution principle i don't I don't know how the Pollard boys have done it, but they've stolen my notes. I, just, I don't know how they've done it. Change is hard. That's number two. Change is hard. We talk about sometimes in the religious world, well, people, they grew up believing this, and this is how they think. But, you know, it's hard to change what you believe. And they just have this ingrained in them that righteous people are blessed, wicked people suffer, and it's difficult to change. Here's a third one. And we don't give this one enough credence when we read the book of Job. They want to believe the retribution principle is true because it is. Sometimes it is. The Bible teaches that it is. Now, their problem is they've applied this to every circumstance. But part of the reason why Job's friends believe in the retribution principle, that good people are blessed and wicked people suffer, is because that's what God teaches on occasion. Does he not? Look at Galatians chapter 6. We'll just look at a few passages. The retribution principle is held to so tightly by these guys because they didn't make it up. It's what God says. Galatians 6, 7 and 9. 7 through 9. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, what? That also will agree. Those that sow to the flesh will. Okay, bad people get bad things. Those that sow to the spirit will of the spirit reap. Everlasting life. What is that? That's the retribution principle, at least in part. The last two verses of Isaiah 57 says that there is no peace for the wicked. That's the retribution principle, that wicked people will get what they ultimately, what they deserve. Or you think about Cain in Genesis chapter 4. God says, Cain, if you do well, you'll be delivered. If not, sin is crouching at the door. God teaches throughout Scripture in places that wicked people do suffer. 
and that righteous people are blessed. But that's not always the case. They believe that you reap what you sow. Do you believe that? Shake your head or not. Do you believe that? Yes. You reap what you sow. That's biblical. But this is also biblical, and this is what they don't believe. You don't sow everything you reap. The Bible teaches you reap what you sow, but nobody sows everything they reap. You know that's true because wicked people are blessed. Matthew 5, God sends his rain on the just and the unjust. His sun rises on the evil and the good. Surely Jesus didn't reap all that he didn't sow all that he reaped throughout his life. You reap what you sow. The Bible teaches that. But the Bible does not teach that we sow everything we reap. Sometimes crops come up and we didn't put that seed in the ground. That's what Job's experiencing. So that's the next one. And here's the last one that I would say. And then we'll try to make our way to chapter 15. And this is probably their biggest problem throughout the speeches. The reason why they want to believe the retribution principle is true is because they're bad listeners. Job, you did what? What did they say Job did? Job, you sinned. Job says what? I didn't sin. And what did they say after that? She did. And what does Job say? Solomon says, He that is first in his own call seems just until his neighbor comes and searches him. You know, one of their biggest problems is they are bad listeners. This, the book of Job is the ancient Near Eastern version of Facebook. Right? They make their post. They say, well, Job, you don't know the Bible. We know this. And then Job comments under their comment, and he's like, well, you don't know my life. I've done this. And he posts a selfie of him giving bread to homeless people. And then they put a verse back to Job, and they say, well, Job, we know you've sinned. Nobody's listening. They're talking past each other. The speeches at the heart of them are deep theological men in an ancient Near Eastern Starbucks Bible study just talking past each other, and they don't listen. They want to cling to the retribution principle. They could see Job as the exception if they would stop long enough to listen. But they don't want to listen. You know what they're doing? When Eliphaz is making his speech, Job's winding up his. And when Job winds up his speech, Bildad's in the bullpen winds up his. Nobody's listening to anybody. Everybody's ready to make their defense. And this is a problem. Sometimes this happens to us. We can't comfort and assist people if we won't sit still long enough to listen to what they're saying. We sometimes have our theological guns loaded and we're ready to unload on people. We're ready to respond. But do we really listen to what other people are saying? And that's one of their, their big problems. Their relationship and our relationship to this principle is important because many people lose their relationship to God over it in two different ways. Number one, sometimes people they'll quit Christianity because they'll say, I'm a good person, and then what? Why do bad things happen to me? And if God's who we really claim to be, these bad things shouldn't be happening to me, and they'll quit Christianity. But then on the other hand, some people never come to Jesus because of their misunderstanding of this principle. They will say, I have no need for organized religion because I know I'm favored and blessed by God. Look at how blessed my life is. In their mind, the retribution principle says, Got a good job, got a good house, got a good clean bill of health, great family. There's no need for me to go any further in my commitment with Jesus because based on this principle, I'm already set. Both camps miss out because they fail to see that God doesn't necessarily deal in these ironclad arguments and the friends make a mistake as a result. So the retribution principle is true in part, but not completely. And Job's friends have a problem. So go to Job 15. And now we're ready for the, the second cycle of speeches. Job 15 through 21 gives us these cycles. Eliphaz speaks first in Job 15, and then Job for two chapters in 16 and 17. Bildad after him in 18, and then Job responds to him in 19. 
Zophar speaks in chapter 20, and then Job rounds us out in Job 21. Now, this cycle, the second one, is interesting because Job's speeches somewhat get better. The friends get worse. Now, maybe you've been with somebody who's suffered before, who's suffering terribly. Anybody ever sat by anybody suffering, they've lost a loved one, and they start to say terrible things. God hates them and all. But every now and again, and it may just come out of nowhere, they'll say something hopeful. They'll say, but I know God's going to be with me. And then they kind of go right back into the pit of despair. And occasionally, there'll be these bursts of hope, these flickers of, okay, all hope isn't lost. All theological beliefs are not surrendered. That's what you have with Job. Occasionally, throughout this section, Job will spit some things of hope out that he seems to think, okay, my life's not a total loss. One day it's going to be fixed, but right now I just want to die and go to Sheol. And you're like, Job, which one is it? Well, it's both for Job. He's struggling. But the friends have no such nuance. They get worse and worse. Not only do they get worse about Job, but they start to get very demonic in the things they say about God, which brings up God's statement at the end. In Job 42, 7, God's going to say, you did not speak with what was right concerning me. And I would say that statement that God makes at the end is true throughout, but especially in this second cycle. They are going to say some things that impeach Almighty God. And so that's their problem. So we don't have time to read all the speeches, but um, we'll kind of go through them. And what we're going to do in all of them, just so you know, I want you to pay attention. I'm going to highlight some verses. At the end of each speech, like with Eliphaz in chapter 15, I'm going to ask us three questions. And I want us all to think through these out loud. The first question is going to be, what was right with this person's speech? All that they say isn't wrong. What's right about it? The second question is going to be, what did they say that was wrong? And then the third thing will be, how did they represent or misrepresent God? And then we'll go to the next person. So let's start with Eliphaz in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1, tells us that Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, and then from verse 2 down through verse 16, he does what the friends do. They argue that Job has done what? Sin. He mentions the retribution principle. But... He first starts to attack Job personally in 2 through 16. I'm going to kind of sprint through this, but be looking for those three questions. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue an unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good, but you're doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Stop right there in verse 6. Eliphaz says, Job, you think you're the smartest person in the world, but, and here is the strongest condemnation that Eliphaz utters and his biggest problem. Look at verse 4. What does Eliphaz say in verse 4? You are doing away with what? And? Eliphaz is saying, Job, if what you're saying is right, you're doing away with reverence for God. If you're, tr if you're right and the retribution principle is not true, who would serve God? Surely you've sinned because, Job, if you have never committed a sin and you're suffering like this, who would serve God if you could be righteous and still suffer? You're doing away with meditation. Job, if what you're saying is right, our theology is not only upended. Service to God is for nothing. Who does he sound like? Didn't the devil say, Job 1 and verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? That's what this whole saga is all about. Will God be served just because he's God? Eliphaz is saying, Job, if you're right, it makes no sense to serve God. What does that tell you about Eliphaz? What kind of man is he? <laughs> Health and wealth gospel, right? He's saying, God, I'm going to serve God if I'm paid to do so. 
But if people just break out into the chicken pox and 10 funerals in a day for no reason, then reverence for God is really a waste of time. And so, Job, your words are windy. They're, they're useless. He believes that Job is mistaken. He sounds like the devil. He sounds like the adversary. We don't serve God because we get stuff. We get stuff because we serve God. Thomas Merton said this. He said, if we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that ultimately can fail us. We run the risk of hating him if we do not get what we hope for. If you fall in love with God merely because of the stuff he gives, the day he stops giving those things, you run the risk of not only turning away from God, but hating him. You can't serve God for something less than himself. Himself, Eliphaz is saying, hey, Job, you're about to up in theology. You have windy words. All right, then he goes on to talk about Job as someone who knew, who has this new idea, and he thinks he's smarter than everybody else. He says, look at verse 7. Are you the first man who was born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? And what do you understand that is not clear to us? Now notice verse 10. Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. I don't know how you think about the three friends, but I used to think about them as Job's contemporaries that came to talk to Job. That's not true. They're Job's friends, but they're older men who have kind of come to son Job, so to speak. They're older than him. They're as old as his dad. And so let's just say Job, based on his kids and what we know about him, Job's in the middle stage of life. we got all different ages in here. I'm not going to tell you what the middle stage of life is. (laughs) But they're at least 30 to 40 years older than Job, and that's why they talk to him like they do throughout the book. Don't view these folks as all the same age having a friendly conversation. These are Job's older superiors saying, Job, you're not smarter than us. We've been knowing this stuff since before you were born. Joe, you need to appreciate that this isn't new. Everybody believes the retribution principle. Everybody believes this. We've got age on our side. You're young. You're fresh. You're new. But we're smarter than you. We're wiser than you. We've been at this longer than you. And so, Joe, you need to see it our way. From verse 14 down through verse 16, look at what Eliphaz says. What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, probably talking about the angels, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Job, you're not smarter than us. Job, we're older than you. And by the way, Job, God doesn't trust anybody. So why would he ever trust you? He doesn't trust his holy ones, the angels, nobody. Is that true? How do you know that's not true? That God is not the man that Eliphaz says in 14 through 16, that God does trust people that you can please God. Eliphaz says, Joe, why would you think you could ever have God's favor? God doesn't trust anybody. Nobody can be pure in his sight. You say that's not true. How do you know? He has statements that people were his friend. Before that, let's go back. He has statements okay. about who? David, Abraham. I mean, there's countless examples. Noah, Getting warmer. Noah, Noah well. did exactly what he said. He gave him instructions it's explicit how to build an ark. He did it. Now look, let's just play, let's just for example, let's just take those people out. Let's just imagine Eliphaz doesn't know those people. Everything you said is right. Noah and David. Let's just say Eliphaz doesn't know those people. How is what you're saying, which is exactly on the bullseye correct, 
how would Eliphaz be able to know that's still true, though, that God has said positive things about people, that he trusts in people, and that it's not impossible to please God? How do we know, if we didn't have any other book of the Bible except the one we're studying, that that couldn't be true? Eliphaz can't be right in 14 through 16. God said things about Job. The whole book of Job is about God's supreme confidence in a human being. It's not the case that nobody can please God. God doesn't trust anybody. He trusts Job with his very reputation. He lays it all on the line by saying, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him in all the earth. An upright man fears God, turns away from evil, touch all that he has. He will not curse me. You can't get any more trustworthy than that. Eliphaz is mistaken. And sometimes we talk like him. Well, we're all a bunch of sinners. And nobody can really ever stand before. And I know what we mean. And if we mean by that on our own, by our own merit and righteousness, we can't earn God's favor, then we're correct. But if we mean we're all one step away from hell because God is just so holy and so other, and God doesn't really like anybody, but he tolerates us in Jesus, we sound like Eliphaz, and we're mistaken. The Bible repeatedly says over and over again, God can be pleased. God is not so capricious and angry that Jesus just makes him put up with us. What does John 3.16 say? For God so... We sometimes quote it as if, for God so hated the world that Jesus died to change his mind about us. But that's not what it says. Jesus was a manifestation of what was already true. God already loved us. Jesus didn't convince God to love us. Jesus is proof that he already does. But sometimes we talk like Eliphaz. God didn't trust anybody. God didn't really like anybody. Nobody can ever really be sure of their standing. Eliphaz is saying that to Job, and it's incorrect. His speech is not, his speech isn't right. All right, let's round this out. From verse 17 down through the end, he basically says, forget what you think, listen to me. That's exactly what he says. Look at 17. I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen, I will declare. Um, this probably isn't a good way to talk to anybody, but especially a man that's just very ten of his kids and who's suffering. He's saying, Job, you don't know anything. Listen to me. And everybody's always believed this way. That's verse 18. What a great attitude and dialogue to have with a friend, right? He describes the suffering of the wicked, which resembles Job's situation. That's in verse 20 down through verse 24. And he says, this is how God responds to people that have mistreated him. That's verse 25 down through 35. So that's Eliphaz's speech. Job has windy words. We're older than you. Nobody can ever please God and you shouldn't think that you're special. Listen to me, verse 17. Verse 18, we've thought this way for a long time. More stuff about the retribution principle. And Job, you're getting exactly what you deserve. All right. What does Eliphaz get right? Someone says nothing. That's probably not true. But what does Eliphaz get right? Does he get anything right? Verse 34, people without God have nothing. Yeah, that's right. So he gets right that what? Wicked people will what? suffer. Yeah, wicked people will get punished. That's true. Wicked people suffer. God's going to punish them. Eliphaz says that in verse 34, and um, Eliphaz is right about that. The Bible does say that wicked people suffer. Jeremiah 5.25, Jeremiah says, your sins have withheld good from you. That's true. Eliphaz is right about that, and um, that's about it, okay? Now, what, what does Eliphaz get wrong? What does he get wrong in his speech? Okay, so he's wrong about God. What does he rely on in verse 18 to make his case? What does he say in verse 18 makes him correct in his friends? All the men in all of their history, this is how they've 
what do we call that? What's the word for that? Starts with tra, ends with dition. Tradition. Tradition is not king. Tradition doesn't make you right. Now, again, we talked about the fact that retribution is taught in the Bible. God does bless the good and punish the wicked sometimes. You might even say most of the time. But arguing from tradition is not a good way to state your case. They argue with Job, and they're saying, hey, we're right because all the people that have lived before us agree. Do people talk like that sometimes today? Well, I know this this is a right belief and the right doctrine because my grandma, and look at all these people that believe this. That doesn't make us right, though, just because we think that. All right, how does he represent God, and how does he misrepresent God? What does Eliphaz tell us about God? How does he picture God in verse 14 through 16? Okay, God's untouchable, unreachable. What else does he say about God? You can't be pure in his sight? Nobody can be. Can we be pure in God's sight? Yeah, we can. And so, Rita? You said, oh, no. Okay. Yeah, he says we can't be pure in his sight, and God doesn't trust anybody. And so Eliphaz says, God can't be pleased. If you wanted to serve God and you heard that, what would that do to your confidence? How would you think about your relationship to God if you heard Eliphaz talk to you about God? And he says, listen, it's going to be a rough uphill battle for you. Um, God doesn't like you. He's watching the angels behind his back. And um, nobody can be pure in his sight. What would that do for your confidence in trying to approach God? You would despair. Why, why bother? Why? How many people have thought about obeying the gospel and said this? Well, I might, but... I don't think I'm going to be able to be perfect afterwards. Or I might, but what if I mess up afterwards? Or they've obeyed the gospel, and then through weakness or temptation or whatever, they fall away and they say, well, I can't come back now because God's so disappointed in me. They believe Eliphaz's doctrine about God. God can't be pleased. He can't be. Well, God already knows all that about us. That's not news to God that you and I commit sin. It's a mistaken idea. Okay, now Job's response. Let's go to Job's response to Eliphaz in 16 and 17. Now, Neil mentioned this last week, but Job's response transitions in this second cycle of speeches. And Job, he's going to defend himself, but he also is basically saying two things. Please stop bothering me and leave me alone. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody or a discussion, you're going back and forth, and at some point in the discussion, you just transition to, all right, let's just stop. We're not getting anywhere. Let's <laughs> stop this. You're, can you just stop talking? They're argument after argument after argument. And you've kind of exited the argument at this point, and now you're just looking for the off-ramp. That's where Job is. Now, this wasn't bad. This was positive. But at the end of the meeting in Indianapolis I was in last week, the last night of the meeting, there was a woman there. She came with a friend. And she was a Seventh-day Adventist. Her name's Jackie. She's a nice lady, faithful Bible student. And she wanted to study about the Sabbath because of something I said about the first day of the week the night before. And after this meeting, we had a two-hour Bible study. And at some point, I just said, we need to stop this discussion because, one, I'm leaving in the morning, but number two, we are not getting anywhere. I mean, we were getting somewhere, but I was not about to up in 20 or 30 years of her theology that night. There were some holes poked, some seeds sown, but at some point it was just an exercise in futility, and we were kind of getting like Job and his friend. Well, I've got a verse. Well, i got a verse for you, and I've got a verse, and at some point it's just healthy to stop. And she set up the preacher, and even she and I have agreed to continue some dialogue and study. But at some point, it just does no good to continue to round the bases. That's where Job is with his friends. Look at Job 16. In verse 2 down through verse 5. 
I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. So Job says, if you were in my shoes, I could say the same things about you. But Job says, I wouldn't do that. What would Job do if he were them in verse 5? Job says, I would strengthen you. Eliphaz, if you were in my shoes, I would never come to your house and do what you're doing to me. If you were in my shoes, I would speak words of upbuilding. I would try to correct you. I would try to not correct you, but I would try to comfort you. I wouldn't do this. Galatians 6 talks about restoring people. Brethren, if any of you are overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of, what's next? Gentleness. Why? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. People have talked about this word, restore such a one, and how it could refer to setting a bone back in place. And if you break your leg and you go to the doctor, what do you want them to do? Just grab your right, bring it over here, and set you straight. How do you want to be handled? Gently. Job is saying, Eliphaz, really? Is this how you want to talk to me? I mean, if, if I were in your I could do the same thing, but I wouldn't play by those same rules. I wouldn't be that kind of friend to you. I would be gentle. I would be kind. One man, Brent Strong, said, you should never talk theology in the ICU. Now, I don't know if he's right. I think there's a time to comfort people and say things, but his point is, you know, when people are losing those dearest on earth to them, when people are suffering, they really don't need your exposition of said Bible passage to try to correct them and set them straight. They really just need your presence. And Job doesn't have that with his friends. They've disappointed him. Think about Paul at the end of Paul's life. Now, you read the book of Acts, and Paul spent the most time in Asia. For three years, he was in Ephesus. But at the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy 1 and 15, he says, all of those in Asia turned away from me. 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, he says, at my first offense, nobody stood with me. Nobody. All the people Paul converted. All the people Paul helped. Paul says, nobody. Job says in verse 2, miserable comforters are you all. All right. Now, he says that he's not suffering for any sin or wrong he's done, but because of how God's dealt with him. Now, here's where Job gets dark. Job starts to say some things that are not right. Job gets off course. Job doesn't sin in the beginning, Job 1, 20 and 21. But I believe Job does say some incorrect and even sinful things throughout the speeches. And I know sometimes people may have different views on this, but if Job doesn't sin at all, then he wouldn't need to repent like he does in Job 42 and verse 6. So Job does sin, and I would say in these speeches, he says some pretty terrible things. Look at Job 16, and uh, he starts to talk about how God's dealt with him. I'm in Job 16. Look at verse 9. What does he say about God in verse 9? Job 16, 9. What has God done to him? Hated me. That's pretty strong. Job, that's, that couldn't be correct theology. That's not right. He says, he has torn me in his wrath and he hated me. Does God hate Job? How does God feel about Job? Everybody, how does God feel about Job? Loves him. Holds him in the highest esteem. He's not merely tolerating Job. Job has no bigger fan, for lack of better words. But he says, God hates me. What else does he say in verse 11? He says, God gives me up to the ungodly. He casts me to the wicked. In verse 12, he basically says, God's using me for target practice. I was at ease, minding my own business. He broke me apart. He seized me by the neck. He dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. I haven't done anything wrong, Eliphaz. The problem is God is out to get me. He hates me, and now my life is an exercise in God's wrathful vengeance on me for whatever. I don't know. God has left me in tears. That's what he says in verses 14 through 17. And then, out of nowhere, Job expresses hope. Look at Job 16 and verse 19. 
Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eyes pour out tears to who? To God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I will go away from which I will not return. And so Job says, God hates me, but my witness is in heaven on high. Well, Job, which is it? Is God against you or for you? Job's like, yes. <laughs> he doesn't understand. Yes, he's struggling mightily. Now, chapter 17, he continues with his negative thinking and his pessimism. And this is typical of people suffering, and it's even a thought throughout the Psalms. They ebb and flow with both grief and hardship. Now, quickly, we've got a sprint. What does Job get right? What's right in Job's speech to Eliphaz in Job 16 and 17? He has not what? Sinned. He hadn't sinned. He's innocent. In fact, in Job 19, Job's going to say, by the way, I'm not sinless. I might have sinned. And even if I did sin, I didn't do anything to get like this treatment. Job's going to say, okay, I've, I probably have sinned before I know I have, but I didn't do anything worthy of this. Job's right in that he doesn't sin. He speaks also right about his friends. He's disappointed. We don't have time to look at this, but sometime read Psalm 35, 12 through 16. The psalmist says, when you were in grief talking about his friends, I wore sackcloth and ashes. I was suffering with you, but you, you didn't walk with me through the valley like I walked with you. And when you are suffering, when you're going through hardship, remember the people that were there for you. We sometimes remember the people that weren't there. Remember the people that showed up at the funeral for your mom or your dad or your loved one. Because one day, they may be going through hardship. And we need to remember the people that are there for us. Job doesn't have that. But I believe we've had some of that in our lives, and we shouldn't forget those people. Another thing Job gets right is he openly laments and expresses his complaint with God, which God welcomes. <laughs> Psalm 62 and verse 8, the psalmist says, Pour out your heart to God. And Job does that. And we need to do more of that. When we pray, we can be open and honest with God and pour out our hearts before Him. What's wrong with Job's speech? God doesn't hate him. God doesn't what? God doesn't hate him. So we can just say what we said about Eliphaz. What do they get wrong? Yeah, they get wrong God. Is that a pretty big deal? Yeah, that's the biggest deal. They get that one wrong is to miss it all, right? Now, Job has a cosmic enemy. You might even say Job has a spiritual enemy. But he's paid the wrong person. Job has heavenly help, spiritual help. And he's struggling to get that right. We have a cosmic enemy, a spiritual enemy. A heavenly enemy, for lack of better words but sometimes not the person we think it is. And that's Job's biggest problem. All right, how does Job represent God or misrepresent God? He thinks God hates him. That's not the truth. He thinks God's against him. That's not the truth. He thinks God wants to crush him, but God actually wants to crown him. He does properly represent God because he believes God still has his record and testimony in heaven. So he's got that right, Job 16 and verse 9. But the next time you feel like God's providence has been unkind and you're the black sheep in God's family, remember if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31 and 32. God has not appointed or destined us for wrath. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. The idea that God just wants to send people to hell and get them separated from him is just not true. And that's what Job got wrong. All right. This class ends at 25 or 20? I always forget. 25. 25? All right. So we got 10 minutes to do the last two. Go to Job 18. Feel that speech is shorter. That doesn't mean it's any better. It's just <laughs> All right, last time we heard from Bildad was in Job chapter 8. And in Job chapter 8 and verse 4, he says, Oh, Job, all ten of your kids sinned. That's why they died like they did. So he didn't have anything positive to say. And the bad news is, 
he hasn't changed much since then. So he wants to know why Job thinks he's smarter than everybody else. Look at Job 18, 1 through 3. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider then and we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? All right, so he's saying, why do you think you're smarter than everybody else? He wants to know why Job thinks that the normal order of things, the retribution principle, should be changed for him. Look at verse 4. You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of his place? Hey, this is pretty sturdy and steady, Job. Why do you think things need to be changed for you? Why does God need to make an exception for you? God doesn't. You're suffering because you've done wrong. The remainder of his speech is no new information. He describes the wicked. And what does he say about the wicked from verses 5 through 21? He talks about how they're going to be destroyed. Anthony Ash in his commentary on Job says that this part of Bildad's speech, 5 through 21, would make a great sermon on hell. It would. He says some pretty powerful things about what's going to happen to wicked people. This speech is like Eliphaz 2.0, right? So Eliphaz says, hey, it's going to be bad for the wicked. Bildad's like, very bad. Terror. Wickedness. You know, just terrible things. Um... Why do you think he intensified the description of the wicked suffering? Why do you think Bildad steps it up a notch? We don't know for sure, but think of this. Job, you sinned. Job says, I haven't. And then Bildad says, yeah, you have. And by the way, if you don't change, here's going to be your lot. Why would he go into all this detail about the wicked and their suffering? Why do you think he ups the ante in verses 5 through 21? Yes, he thinks Job is guilty. And why else, though, would you go into the descriptions of, like, how this is going to be for a person that doesn't repent? Yeah, trying to use a scare tactic. Anybody ever heard of what some people call hellfire and brimstone preaching? Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, and people talked about how when that sermon was preached in the days of the Great Awakening that people were fainting in the pews and people were crying out in the middle of the sermon for him to stop preaching so they could be saved. Okay, okay, we've heard enough. And he described hell so vividly and so passionately that people just, they wanted to escape the horrors of it. And maybe, you know, he went a little Dante's Inferno, I don't know, but there is a time to talk about hell and to be plain with people about the eventual end of those that aren't found in Jesus. But I think this is where he starts. Because if you look back at the end of Job 17, look at where Job ends in Job 17, 16. This is Job's defense, and he says, Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we ascend to dust into the dust together? So Job ends by talking about Sheol and talking about his hope. And Bildad shows up and says, You're not going to have any. Speaking of Sheol, Job, that's where you're going if you don't hurry up and fix it. And the remainder of his speech in 5 through 21 is basically a rebuke of Job to say, Yeah, Job, you're getting what you what you deserve, and it's going to get worse. And look at how bad the wicked have it, Job. You don't want that to be you. He's pleading with Job because he thinks Job needs it. All right, what does Bildad get right in his speech? I mean, eventually the wicked will be punished for what they do. Yeah, I mean, his, his theology on hell is right. His theology on suffering is cool. Um, Psalm 9 and verse 17 says, The wicked will be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. That's right. That's what the Bible teaches. Paul says retribution, tribulation, and distress on every transgression. Romans 2, 8 through 9. That's right. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, he'll take vengeance and flaming fire on those that don't know God and those that obey, obey not the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. He describes separation from God as a terrible thing, and it is. Bildad's right to say that part if he was in the proper context. What's wrong with his speech, though? 
Job's not wicked. He's wrong. We should never make lost people feel like they're saved. And we should never make saved people feel like they're lost. Whenever we do that, we're wrong. We should never make lost people feel like, hey, you really don't have a lot to change. And, you know, we can kind of sneak you into Christ through the back door. You don't have a lot of, you know, amending to do. You don't have a lot to change and make them feel like they're safe in their circumstance. But we shouldn't make saved people feel like they're lost. They should have the confidence that Jesus died to purchase for them. We should know that we're saved. And then he represents God. He misrepresents God just like the others. And his is probably the worst so far as I can tell. Uh, he only mentions God in verse 21 in this last part of the, the chapter. And that's his biggest deal. Whenever our theology is about more of what we think than about who God is, that's the problem. He doesn't mention God in his speech. He just continues to lay down the scare tactics and tell Job all the things he's gotten wrong. All right. The last one. Well, we'll look at Job's response briefly, and then this last one is kind of summed up together. Job responds to Bildad in Job 19. Job strongly rebukes his friends, and he says, I'm not perfect in verses 1 through 3, but even if I've sinned, I haven't done anything to deserve this. He returns strong accusations against God in verses 7 through 12. He says, God walled up his way, Job 19 and verse 8. God has stripped him of his glory. Verse 9, God has broken him down on every side. God has kindled his wrath against him. God has sent out troops to cast a siege ramp around him. So he's saying all these things about God again. Job is mistaken. But then catch the sarcasm in Job. You can almost hear him clearing his throat in verse 13. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. Maybe his wife's in earshot of this. My close friends <clears throat> have forgotten me. The guest in my house and my maidservants calls me to be a stranger. I become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant. He doesn't come. Verse 17, my breath is strange to my wife. Look at verse 19. What does he say? All my intimate friends, what? They hate me. And those whom I love have turned against me. He gets sarcastic with them right in his face. He's saying, people like you, y'all are my problem. I can't trust anybody. You guys are a disappointment. And he pleads his case. But then, just like in chapter 16, there's a glimmer of hope. We sing so many songs based on this verse, Job 19:25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last He will stand on the earth. And then He talks about after my flesh has been destroyed, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And then He talks about this hope that He has. Now, who is this Redeemer? Who does Job think this person is? What is Job hoping for? Who is he referring to? There's a lot we can say about this. I believe Job still believes God's going to come through for him. I know he doesn't have a perfect theology of who Jesus is, but when all of the options are exhausted, that's the only person who could fit this bill. But just notice what he says. I just want to notice a few things. Verse 25, he says, I know. Job has confidence. He does believe he has a redeemer, a goel, a representative to stand up for him. He says, I will see God. That's verse 26. He believes that God will fix things for him. So Job may not know everything, but he does believe he can know some things. He maintains, he maintains his hope and his hardship. He still accuses God of doing what God hasn't done. But he does picture God as the one that will finally appear for him. And that's, that's helpful. All right, here's the last part. Job 20 through 21. We've got two minutes. And that's all we'll need because these two speeches go together. Zophar says in Job chapter 20, the wicked prosper but only for a short time. He says, Job, you had a good life. And then it kind of caught up to you. And he's going to like accuse Job of potentially, you know, embezzling money, mistreating the poor. And he's going to say, Job, you probably didn't sin publicly, but in secret you did. And now it's being shown publicly by the stuff you're suffering. 
And God always makes sure the wicked get what's coming to them. That's Job 20, 20 through 29. He pictures the wicked as always being dealt with and always being punished for their sins. Job responds. What do you think Job says? Job in Job 21 does the opposite of Zophar, and this is Job's big mistake in this section. Zophar says, hey, the wicked always get what's coming to them. Job 21, Job says, the wicked never get what's coming to them. They've got the easiest life. They're blessed. They're plush. They don't worry about God. They don't care about God, and everything goes their way. Zophar, you're wrong. I'm not wicked, because if I was, I'd have it pretty cush. The wicked always get their way. It's the cry of Asaph from Psalm 73 when Asaph says, hey, the wicked aren't in slippery places. They do whatever they want. Both of these men are wrong. The wicked don't always get punished like they should, at least in this life. But Job is also wrong to say everything's well with the wicked. Everything goes their way. They're always blessed. And here's what we need to remember. Beware of letting other people push us to extremes. Job has kind of lost sight of the whole argument now. And as he digs in his heels, he becomes almost as obnoxious as the friends. He starts to dig in deeper on God because now he's got to defend himself. Hey, you're saying stuff about me. And so in order to justify himself, he becomes unbiblical and unreasonable.